Welcome back to the Empowered Woman Badass and Unfiltered Podcast. I'm so excited to talk about this topic because I never get to talk about politics. And it's not just like politics that we're talking about. I have Dr. Ruth Backstorm here. She's an author, speaker, and acclaimed educator who is an expert in facilitating methods that foster deeper conversations. You know she's in the right place. Today, she's going to be talking about her most recent book, and it is Igniting a Bold New Democracy, Empowering Citizens Through Game-Changing Reforms. And it just came out March 30th, 2023. So this is right on time. Definitely check the links in the show notes below. Check out her website. Um, and, and especially after you listen to what she's going to talk about, you're definitely going to be interested. There's this is going to leave you with some hope. Dr. Ruth, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Olivia. I'm so excited to be Ab- here. Absolutely. So tell me about what caused you to write this book. Right. So the story that I always tell goes way back to when I was 13 years old. And actually, it goes back even further to like when I was seven or eight, and I was riding with my mother through a nearby neighborhood. It was a low-wealth African-American neighborhood. And I turned to her and said, how come these houses are so much smaller than our houses? And I didn't get a really satisfactory answer from from her on that. And then like five years later, I heard this voice on the radio and he was addressing these concerns that I'd expressed. And I found out it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and that the civil rights movement was starting, and that there was a protest in Chicago, which is where I grew up. And so I was like, I'm in. Now, at the time, you have to understand, I was going to a school that was 90% African-American, and it had the capacity of half the amount of students that were actually in it. It was like so stuffed to the gills. They had upstairs cases and downstairs cases to handle the overflow of students, and then mobile classrooms in the back to further handle it. So I knew the problems with not integrating the schools in a personal way. So I was on board. And so I I got down and caught the Illinois Central to get downtown and join the march. And we got to this grassy knoll. And we were going to talk to the superintendent, but then they called the superintendent and he said he wasn't going to talk to us. Big surprise. And so we decided to sit down in protest. And then as I looked out of the side of my Um, corner of my eye, I saw that Dick Gregory, who was the head of the march, was being beaten by the police. And he had like, you know, rivulets of blood, like a scalp wound really bleeds, you know, profusely. And here I am, like I'm a 13 year old. And I'm thinking, am I going to look like that? It was, you know, I was really scared. And so I said to my friend, hold on tight. And we kind of interlocked our arms as we sat down. But this policeman was there and he heard me and he said, I'll get that one. I was like, oh. And I stood up and said, I'm walking into the paddy wagon because I didn't want to look like that. But it left this really deep impression with me of what the civil rights movement, the courage it took and how frightening it was for people and what and how we really have to stand behind the gains that we made and keep going even further. So that that was a big influence on my life and, and made me really interested in having a more just society. 
And then as I grew a little older, I got really interested in meditation and the idea of how people could really fulfill their potential and experience kind of the depths of their, what they were capable of doing. And, and these two sort of themes have been kind of my life themes of like, what's the potential of people? And then what's the potential for societies to be really effective and just and, and create the kind of place we know that it's possible to live in and, and feel good about. And so my book starts with in the first, so I wrote this book, then moving fast forward, I got involved in sustainability issues. And then I realized that there was so much conflict. I had to figure out, I was really interested in how groups could get together and be really effective. And the most important thing that I discovered was that groups, just like we talk about an individual being really powerful, groups can be really powerful too. They can work in their zone, just like an individual can work in their zone. And I learned this really powerful technique called dynamic facilitation, which was started by a man named Jim Ruff in Washington State. And I found that we could come to agreement on things and weave everyone's concerns together and come out feeling like a group instead of just a collection of individuals. It was a really powerful experience. And it made me realize that there is this thing which I call collective intelligence, and other people do too, of course, and that we can tap into that when a group kind of, when individuals kind of transcend their egos and start to think like a group of the concerns that, that everybody has in the room. So collective intelligence means, you know, a group is working at its highest capacity. And this isn't just a sort of a theory. This has actually been moved into practice. For instance, there's a woman named Judith Glazier who took this idea into the workplace. And she found if she could change the conversations and she could change the culture of the workplace, she could actually change the bottom line. So, for instance, she took Clairol at a time when it was kind of struggling from millions of dollars to billions of dollars in a decade. Because the conversations got so good that everybody listened to each other and tried to figure out, they mapped their different realities together and started asking questions that they didn't have answers for. And then they found solutions that were really powerful. So that's a good example of how collective intelligence works. And then in Austria, they're using dynamic facilitation in a civic capacity. So whenever they want, this started in 2005 in a state in Austria. Whenever they want to get the voice of the people about a subject, they'll, they'll call together a group of 20 people who are randomly selected and ask them to give their opinion on an issue. So, for example, they decided they would call together a group of people to talk about immigration. And usually what happens is the government like puts all the information and the data together. So they, they know what the situation is. And then they ask the people what they think the next step should be. And at first, when people got all the information, they were like, the numbers are really high. <laughs> you, know, you haven't been completely transparent with us about how many people are coming over. And you need to be. They, they were saying you need to be more transparent. And then somebody said, but we need to see the people behind the numbers. And that really stirred the compassion in the room. 
And that's kind of the way groups work with their functioning well, is that they stir the compassion and they, they kind of drop into this more authentic, caring space, especially if someone sort of leads them by comments that they make. But there are also other outline comments. Like one man said, well, I don't think we should get them jobs because, you know, I don't, I don't think they deserve jobs. And now in dynamic facilitation, the great thing is the facilitator goes deeper and says, well, now, why do you think that? Instead of shaming him or making him feel bad for having said that, because there was kind of a gasp, I think, in the room, but she went further and he said, well, my niece has been looking for a job for two years and she can't find a job. So why should they get jobs? And that humanized and people understood where he was coming from. And then they thought, well, why don't we open it up so citizens can be come to job fairs that we create too so everyone has access to these jobs and and that's actually kind of a, a problem that a lot of people feel i think in different in various countries is that they're not being taken care of by their own country so why should immigrants or other people get taken care of so i mean it raises a perfectly legitimate question you know we need to be taking care of everyone and everyone needs to feel taken care of so it's a, it's a great example of how we can weave concerns together to meet multiple concerns without having to have these kind of fights about things. Mm. I see why you're an educator because I just, I got a whole bunch of notes and I am, we are just getting into it. Okay. Okay. I've got a few different things I want to talk about from what you said. I love that you talk about the potential of people and really capitalizing on that potential of our citizens. I think what I'm seeing with the advent of AI and technology, immigrants ain't our problem. Like I'm talking about America right now. Right. It's the fact that in Texas, there is now a McDonald's that doesn't have a single employee. Wow. (laughs) Like it's completely automated. So, you know, for those that think, well, Fast food jobs are for high schoolers. Well, where are those high schoolers going to start working? You know? Right. Right. Like in 10, 20 years from now, what is, what is that going to look like? So if we spent more time investing on our individuals rather than technology to replace those individuals, I think that we would definitely see a better, I understand that it's cheaper. Okay. I I get it. You know? Right. Right. But what are you going to do when a natural disaster hits and the technology don't work? Right. Who are you going to have? You're going to have the people that are unskilled, uneducated, that you neglected. Okay. That's where you have a whole bunch of them. Which brings yeah, me into the say something about that. I think the important thing is that we get in front of this, that mm-hmm. we control how it happens. That, I mean, I have a whole section. My last section of my book is on creating the future that we want instead of being blindsided by one that we don't want. Right. Because, I mean, if it still keeps going in the way that it is, that it appears to be going, right. and we don't get ahead of it, that's what—that's the reality that we're going to have. And I think that we, that's a serious conversation that we have to have as a society, which exactly. brings me to the sustainability. You know, you getting a, us getting ahead of that makes our society a lot more sustainable. Right, right. <laughs> and less of these horrible storms. I mean, we're those storms are now baked in for three decades because we haven't addressed this issue. So we need to address it so it's not more decades that we're adding on to that. 
But this makes it even more important that we get in, get in front of the inequality that exists in our society. We have one of the highest rates of inequality. And one of the problems when you get this high rate of inequality is that it's really hard to break it without a revolution. I mean, that's what history has shown. So we really need high levels of civic engagement to really turn the tide. And that's the argument that I make in my book. Now, the good news, though, is that that's happening all across the world. Mm -hmm. There are citizen assemblies on climate change that have happened all the way from Washington State to Australia. And they, while I was writing the book, actually, these all happened. And so it's like, I think we're all on the same page that the way to get democracy stronger is, to, is more democracy, to bring out really high levels of civic engagement so that we're actually creating the future that we want instead of relying on our broken politics, which is not working very well as, as we can all we agree. Yeah, we don't seem to be solving any problems by creating them. I also want to talk about collective intelligence not being groupthink. Yes, that's a great question. Good question. Yeah, the Borg from Star Trek fame where everybody thinks the same way, you know? No, actually what, what you experience when you're doing one of these groups is that the outliers often are really critical in deepening the conversation. That example I gave is that Batman deepened the conversation and brought in a whole other angle. So you have to welcome the diversity. One of the things I would say in my book is that our diversity is not a liability. It's our greatest asset. The more diversity that you get in the room, the better you are at problem solving. And I want to jump on this investing in people, too. That My first chapter opens with the GI Bill of Rights, which was a radical thing to do in 1944. After World War II, we gave free education to 7.8 million veterans, and we gave them subsidized housing. Now, that usually was not done. It was a radical idea at the time. They were like, you're going to make hobo jungles out of our colleges. And and it's not going to work. You know, there was all this objection. But once we did it, we created this thriving middle class. And at the same time, the downside of it was African-Americans were not included. So we created a race where one group was way ahead and the, not, the second group could never catch up. And so that's where reparations come in. We social engineered the thing in a bad way. So we have to fix that. We have to invest in African-American communities so we don't have multi-generational poverty anymore. We should just eliminate that. One out of five Black adults <clears throat> grows up in three generations of poverty, whereas only one out of 100 white families does. But we should eliminate it across the board. We're the richest country in the world. There's no reason somebody should be living in poverty for three generations. And and we, we can talk about what's the best way to do that, but it just should happen because we it's like making up for the mistakes that you made in the past. What are some mindset shifts that we need to make as a society? I love that question. I, I listened to your other tape where you asked that, and I thought, I'm going to list these. <laughs> So number one, we need to have, we need to go from thinking in our tribes to thinking as citizens together. We're all in this together. We're going to, we're going to fall in the soup or we're going to rise. It's, that's the way it goes. And we have to admit that. And we agree on a lot more things than we think because we're, 
were encouraged, as you said, by the news companies to to think in, in negatives. You know, they, they really live off negatives, basically. And what happens with that is you create this sort of divide and conquer thing where we're fighting while the money keeps trickling up to the top elite. You know, it's like it would be much better if we got together and said, hey, we want to end this inequality now. And if we got together, we would have a large enough coalition to do that really effectively. But the way to start is these citizen assemblies. I want to go back to them because I think they're really powerful as as well as DF. Because DF is kind of the cheaper version because you're only pulling 20 people together. And then you can have world cafes where the larger group hears what the 20 people talked about. And so the message gets out. So they started that in Bullberg, Wollerberg, Austria in 2005. And they institutionalized it in 2015 because it was so successful at getting the voice of the people into, into the government. And downplaying the effect of special interests. Because, for instance, after that immigration event, somebody said no politician would have the political cover to say the things that they said. Because citizens didn't could say anything they wanted because there was no, you know, there was no donor who was going to go, you can't say that, or there was no, you know, there was nothing stopping them. And so that's the value of having citizen engagement stronger. Plus, I thought, oh, it's great. This is great. It's happening. But I talked to Manfred Hellregel. He said, actually, the most important thing is the learning inside the group. You were talking about learn. It's like learning from each other so that we really understand each other and stop demonizing each other. That just made me think about something that I even said today. Because like, there are certain things that I know people refuse to change their minds on. Like when it comes to their, their morals and their values and everything like that. And I've got a few things that like recently with like certain things that are going on that I'm like, I'm not changing my mind on this. Like I've, I've heard what other people think, but I'm not like, there's nothing that can change my mind on, on certain things. And I know that there's other people that feel very similar with whatever their value systems are and their things. What is your suggestion for that? We don't have to agree. We're not going to agree on everything. We could still be friends and not agree, right? I mean, how do we get into this place where we think we have to agree to be friends, you know? I mean, I have friends that don't think like everyone has friends that don't, you know, there's parts parts of their beliefs that you don't agree with and stuff. But the thing we do have to agree on is an operating system. We have to, I really want us to commit to democracy, but I want it to be like a third way. It's not more of the status quo, and it's not this extreme autocracy that we're moving towards. We're trying to force everybody to believe what we believe. And you can see that to some extent on both sides. In fact, the thing I hear from from everybody is, I want to hear from the middle more instead of the extremes. Whenever mm-hmm. I talk about my book, everyone, that, that's a big theme that comes up. And and it's true, you know, like we actually do better policy together because we're moderated by each side. But I mean, one of the problems is the Republican Party has become so extreme. It's very difficult to deal with. And so we really need to take the moderate conservatives and give them a platform so we can have more of that in the discourse. Yeah, I I will. I identify more so as a moderate conservative. And 
You know what I'm saying? Like, because like, there's some things I'm just like, hold on, y'all, y'all, this is, <laughs> right. this is not even like, this ain't, this ain't the thing, you know? Yeah. But there's other things like with the left and I'm like, no, 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 no. I think that they're, and, and but it's, like I said before, I don't watch the news. I really just stick to working on myself mm-hmm. and being the change that I want to see in the world. But I think that like, I would actually be interested in getting to politics if it could be this type of situation, you right. know, if this was a this environment yeah. that was, that was facilitated. I think that would be a lot more effective because right now I think that people are just taking money and, and having big ego competitions. And, right. you know, I, I just, the stress that comes with that does not produce the same type of reward, the reward from actually making a positive impact in society. I do not, the the way that that stress level, because you get so many, constantly just praying on your downfall, just all of this other stuff, the negativity, and you, it's not doing anything, but creating right. more problems. Right. You got all these other, you we the the fact that we're so extreme now that we have to be so extreme to get attention because right. normalcy is just oh god that that's just not enough i know, know i know oh. common sense is gone <laughs> right and this that's the neat thing about these opportunities is it's a safe space to have the conversations that we should be having deeper conversations and consensus building conversations too I mean, one of the interesting things about these groups is that they can build more consensus, that people can change their minds in in these kind of situations. One of my favorite examples is the study done by Stanford called America in One Room, where they took 500 people, and it was supposed to be the National Opinion Research Center in Chicago, structured it so it looked like America. You know, it was proportionally the same amount of people. So it looked like America in one room. It was 500 people, which is a lot in one room. They polled them when they came in and asked them what they thought the state of democracy was and their feelings about, you know, five different issues. And then they polled them at the end. So when they came in, uh, 30% said democracy was doing moderately well. And then at the end, when they polled them, and they also introduced experts to them, giving them information about these five topics. And at the end, when they polled them, they 60% said democracy was doing moderately well. I mean, that's just a weekend of conversations that were moderated. What could we do if we did this on a scale that was really big and did it across our country? I mean, it could be a huge game changer to have these kinds of conversations. And they also came closer on the issues as well. They came it's a closer. necessary game changer in order for us to make a drastic pivot in the future of our society is absolutely absolutely necessary because yeah what we're doing now just is not it's just not working it's It's not not working right right (laughs) that's something we all agree on in fact a lot of the reforms we agree on too you know like what would be a game-changing reform getting money out of politics you know if there's one thread that would unravel the whole sticky mess it's that. And there's a really interesting example where Maine started funding their state elections. They got to 80% of their candidates were getting, or 80% of the funding, I think it is, came from the state. 
and they got the most worker-friendly agenda. And they had people like teachers and firefighters who would normally not be able to afford to run for office, running for office and taking on those roles. So we know what, what the difference would be because they're a great example of it. So we should do that. We should do that all across our country, really. We should start to advocate for having state funds go to the running of local elections and just have a taste of what it's like. I mean, so the vision that I have ultimately is that citizens need to come together and create our own civic agenda for the reforms that we want and then come together and initiate them through a pro-democracy movement. I mean, another big one is this inequality. I mean, those are two of the biggest problems that we have in our society. And and then, you, I mean, all the way down to, there's so much neglect too, like the homelessness situation. I mean, and there's little clusters where there's they're having success at these issues, but you never hear about that on the news. You know, mostly what you hear about is the stuff that's not working. But if we came together and we started talking about what's working and really revved up what's working, that could be a really powerful thing. It could turn our whole attention towards seeing how democracy can actually work. For instance, homelessness, they've in Stockton, California, they've started giving a collection of homeless men and women $500 a month. And 35% of them were able to get housing from that just with a little boost. You know, it can make a huge difference in people's well-being and stuff. Once again, investing in people. And we know this because that's part of our, that's the best part of our legacy. Every dollar spent on those veterans uh, yielded $7 in return on the GDP. I mean, it's the best investment you can make is investing in people. I mean, I can think of so many things and areas where we need to properly invest in people or in our healthcare and an actual, you know, preventative health right. versus just band-aids. Because right. right. what we do right now, a lot of times how we do, we we fix a problem, but we don't fix the source. We don't focus enough on, you know, I was thinking about this because I got a baby boy. And I was thinking about how much we spend, how much time we spend on dinosaurs. We spend <laughs> so much time on dinosaurs, not saying that we shouldn't know history and shouldn't know <laughs> other things. But we got all these dinosaurs that make people make so much money off of making outfits with dinosaurs on them and all this the <laughs> movies and all the other I, stuff. Yeah, I have dinosaurs. a grandson in that same place. I have to tell you. <laughs> but, but we don't talk about how to manage your emotions. Yeah, that's a great point. Although there is more going on. In it's more, now. but it's like, where are the images of having, oh, you know what I'm saying? Like, wh- yeah. where are we focusing? Like, yeah, there's so much in education, for instance, because you, they've got the dinosaurs on. They want to learn about the dinosaurs, which I don't right. think that that's wrong thing, but they're right. they're in the ground. They ain't really coming back alive. I'm not really trying <laughs> to get them to come back alive. How how is that going to help you operate in society? I'm not saying that it's not right. something that you right. can have as a career field to, you know, do that. But the, the amount of people that actually excavate dinosaurs versus the amount of people that have to manage their emotions and operate in society are a drastically different thing. It's true. That's a big point I make in my book, actually, is that we need to develop. And this is happening, I think, in I know it's happening in California, because my son was saying, every school he went to, they were going, we develop emotional intelligence, you know, and stuff. 
and he was almost worried like you develop the other stuff too <laughs> but um but i think that's a really key point that we we need to develop these soft skills you know mm-hmm. these these are the really important skills especially as you know technology takes over our jobs we have to navigate we have to become more human and better at this human stuff mm-hmm. to make sure that we're bringing creating this society that's equitable and that creates the kind of feelings that we want to have instead of this you know feeling of discomfort and you know regret that we live in a society that doesn't treat people more equitably and stuff i love this is to me i wrote down solution based democracy yeah that's, that's right. what this is that's you know right. it's we are actively working together communitively right to find the solutions for our sustainability of our society, not only the sustainability, but the continual improvement, because we're focusing on investing in the individuals becoming better humans. I think we we would definitely benefit from that. Like these are all great things. And I was I was thinking, I'm like, you know, how am I gonna, you know, find ways? I, I can't disagree with this this theory at all. No. And that's the thing. So I can't disagree with it. So it's like, okay, how do I implement it in my daily life? How do you suggest we start implementing this? Yeah. I mean, one thing we should start doing is talking to people who don't think like us and listening, really listening to them. And there's an organization called Braver Angels that is doing some of this work already. And they have chapters all across the United States and they bring groups together to have debates and to, to hear different sides in a safe space. So there, there's a lot of that work going on. But what I would really like to push for is coaches who are already trained in a lot of this work across the country. I'd like to teach them d- dynamic facilitation so they could have group, they could create groups that would have these conversations everywhere. And and so you have a conversation in the in the group, and then you have what are called world cafes where you spread the knowledge to the to the larger community. And these these could happen all across the United States. They really should. Coaching is a big field now. And the next evolution, I think, is learning how to collaborate more effectively in groups and have the authentic conversations that we want. I mean, it's like people are almost scared to talk about <clears throat> excuse me talk about politics and religion, but those are the things that we both care about the most. We just have to talk about them in a space where everything is safe. Because the other thing I talk about is we need to, we need to, we need a spiritual renaissance where we revitalize our best values, the corruption and the greed and those sort of things has to stop. This isn't how a healthy society functions. And and on that topic, so many people just wear Christianity as a badge to get away with their 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 view point. Oh, well, I'm a Christian and and I'm against abortion. I'm a Christian and I am against homosexuality. Okay, what are you for? Because you're supposed to be for love. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what you're supposed to be for. Yeah. And frankly, you got you got your own demons and and all of these other things that you got to face yourself. And you should ma- much rather focus on that than what everybody else is doing. You know, there there are things where it's like, you know what, that's not good for for my children. That's not how I would like for my my children to be exposed to and and all of those other things. 
you have every single right to do that. I'm not, I'm, that's not the, the argument I'm sitting, but what I, right. I you can't right. preach that you're a Christian and spread nothing but hate. You, right. just, you can't do that. Right. And, and that's the irony. It's we live in this country where we're supposed to, one of the creeds of Christianity is love your, love your enemy, not even just your neighbor. Yes. But love your enemy. Mm-hmm. And here we are. We can't. I mean, this is where I feel like the 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 religious we really need religious leaders to step forward and have these conversations in their churches, too. Yeah. And on campuses, you know, I, I think it's really important that we start talking about these things on those two in those two venues, especially. Like, I, I think it's a crime that we're charging our students so much money that they're going to be shackled with this debt while they have a planet that's on life support and a democracy that's wobbly. And then they have so so much debt, they can't attend to those things. I mean, no other society would do this to their future leaders. It just makes no sense to me. So that's a discussion that should be happening on campuses all over is that we need to free them up and put wind in their sails so they can lead us towards the democracy that we want in the future. Oh, yes. Oh, well, Ruth, I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to have to let you go. Okay. I definitely want to have you back on. Okay. Because this was just such a good topic. Yeah. Oh, man, I want to see what you're doing. I'm going to look up the Braver Angels myself. Okay. Because uh, I'm going to you... push my book here, too. Yes. So people can get it um, on Amazon in Kindle or in hardback or paperback, whatever way they like to read. And you can also get it at your local bookstore, bookstore through Ingram. So it's available. And yeah, and and if you're interested in being trained in dynamic facilitation, you're a coach, just go to my contact page and send me your information. I'll put you on the list. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Backstorm. I greatly, greatly appreciate your time today and this conversation and the hope that you've given me for the future of our society and now the new responsibility I feel like I have to make it a bit in even better place. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and for the great questions you asked. Thanks for listening to this episode of the empowered woman, badass and unfiltered podcast. If you found any value in this, please consider sharing and subscribing. Now go out and be a badass.